Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Great. Okay, great. Awesome feedback. Um, I just wanted to take a moment and welcome you to this morning's presentation um, titled Opioid Conversion Calculations. Sounds very exciting. <laughs> uh, today's speaker is Dr. Lynn McPherson. She is the professor and executive director of advanced postgraduate education and palliative care at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. So without further ado, I will turn it over to Dr. McPherson. Thank you so much. Thank you. So it makes my little OCD pharmacist heart beat so quickly to see all these people up at the crack of dawn to do drug math. How awesome is that? So uh, this is my favorite thing in the world to talk about, opioid conversion calculations. I mean, it, we've got danger, we've got excitement, we've got a fair degree of mysticism, I would say. So uh, let, let's see where we are with this. So I still don't have anything to disclose. I'm a pretty boring girl, what can I say? I'm a rabid knitter. Uh, these are my learning objectives and they'll become self-evident as we roll through this. So I think the first thing is why would we need to switch one opioid to a different opioid or from one formulation to a different one? And I think everybody is familiar with the clinical situations that would warrant this. So it could be the patient's just not responding well to the current opioid and maybe you're thinking, you know, I think it would be awesome if we tried methadone or maybe hydromorphone or whatever. Or they're having a side effect, like everybody and their mother, it seems to itch from morphine. So it's a histamine effect, of course. You could use an antihistamine. Switching to a different opioid is my preferred course of action. A change in the patient's status. So I do a lot of, I do have a chronic non-cancer pain clinic, but most of my work is in hospice and palliative care. So if we have someone who goes into pain crisis, we send them into the inpatient unit, we need to switch them to IV morphine, for example. Or post-operatively, someone's done their parenteral course, you want to send them home on oral therapy. Other considerations, opioid or formulation availability, uh, which could be a formulary issue. So obviously in my hospice, we try to use our workhorse opioids, which literally are methadone and generic long-acting morphine, are probably our two long-actings we use most often. Um, I mean, most, half, at least more than half the hospices in the country are not-for-profit, so we have to be careful there. And we still do contend with patient and family healthcare beliefs. You know, people think that, you know, methadone is only for drug abusers or whatever it may be. Uh, some people call it opioid rotation. I think it's mostly a switch. We're going from drug A to drug B. Um, it could be a substitution. I don't care what you call it, you're going to be doing an opioid conversion calculation. I do think when you're doing these conversion calculations, you should seize the teachable moment. There's certainly a theme here of pain week altogether, and explaining to people why you're doing this, whether it's improved pain management, I wanna to go to a long acting. I know in my chronic um, pain clinic, um, a lot of patients are reluctant to give up their short acting. They, they really enjoy feeling the drug kick in, and I say, no, that's not part of the plan. This is not a party. The, you know, it's not for you to feel like, woohoo, it's time for my Percocet. No, that was not my aim. So I want you to not feel the drug kick in. Enhanced adherence and hopefully better patient outcomes altogether. So I think some, some definitions are in order here. What is opioid responsiveness? It's how much response, how much analgesia you get um, from a particular dose of an opioid, which hopefully you're titrating to an endpoint, which is maximal pain relief short of adverse effects from the drug. What is the potency? It's how much bang you get for your buck. I always tell the story about, I don't know, 15 years ago, my husband and daughter and I were on vacation and I had had an umbilical hernia for years and years and years and we coexisted very peacefully until I picked up my daughter's 90 pound suitcase and I must have really hurt that because I really was in bad shape. So I needed emergency surgery. So I ended up in the ER. The ER doc was cute as a bug's ear and he said, you look really uncomfortable. How about something for the pain? I was like, that's okay. My husband was like, are you nuts? You know you're a big baby and you know you do this for a living for God's sake. So 
So I said, all right, I'll take something. So the, the nurse went off and came back and said, so this is really potent stuff. This is IV dilaudid, two milligrams. She said, so it's really going to knock you out. I said, oh, come on, I'm a fluffy girl. Hit me. So she's like, no, I'm going to do it slow. <laughs> so she does like a little tiny squirt. Man, one arm brain circulation. I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> It was amazing. It was, oh my God, you could have cut off my flipping head. I wouldn't have cared. It was amazeballs. So four hours later, the surgeon comes in and says, you look really uncomfortable. I'm going to order something. So I said, fine. So the nurse comes in, gives me another injection. And I'm thinking a half an hour later, I am not nearly as happy. What is the scoop here? So I asked the nurse, I said, come here. What did you just give me? She said, oh, I gave you a strong dose of morphine, two milligrams. I was like, oh, dude, no wonder I'm not wearing my happy pants anymore. It is not as potent as hydromorphone. So that's my story with potency. And when I gave her the look, my husband was like, oh, my God, she's going to think you're a drug seeker. I said, hey, I'm a drug seeker. I want more drug. So when we talk about, we talk about equipotent doses, so the X amount milligrams of this drug will give you the same clinical effect as X milligrams of this dose. So that's where we talk about the science of equianalgesic opioid dosing, which is not as easy as you would think. So when we look at those tables, and I'll show you my table in just a moment, we talk about, you know, many variables go into this. Certainly part of it is bioavailability. When you look at for example, here, we say it's about 30 to 40% bioavailable, but as you can see, there's a pretty large range. So many things depend on what the ultimate bioavailability is, but it's how much drug actually makes it to the systemic circulation relative, generally, to an IV injection. Hydromorphone. This one has really kept me up nights because when you look at those charts, it's generally one and a half to seven and a half. So it's like a five to one difference, which would apply 20% bioavailability. But if you look at the studies that are like 30 years old, the bioavailability is actually closer to about 50%. But look at this range, anywhere from 29 to 95% bioavailable. So we really have to be cautious because somebody might be on the 29% end, somebody might be on the 95% end. And then oxycodone and oxymorphone are listed there. So this table has very nearly driven me to drink, it, literally. I'm not a drinker, but it's close. I may start Ativan. I keep telling my chair I want an Ativan Halbo lick in my office, you know what I mean? I mean, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't, but anyway. So the thinking here is you go across a line, like 10 milligrams of parenteral morphine is about equipotent to 30 milligrams of oral morphine. Parenteral, including IM, IV, and sub-Q, they're kind of sort of close enough for government work, although I think an IM analgesic is an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp and plastic silverware. It hurts to give you this analgesic. And then going up and down a column is about equivalent and up and down either the parenteral or the oral or even jumping ship. But, um, you know, I, I wrote this book on demystifying opioid conversion calculations, and the first edition came out, oh, six or seven years ago. And the table was bad enough then. It was, it was hard work. I mean, I, I bloodied myself beating my head on the table. But it was a little easier than today because when I did it six or seven years ago, all the data was kind of, I mean, it was very nebulous. But now we're having better data come out. So now what do I do with this table? Because half the data is still questionable, but then we have little pieces that are starting to emerge from better methodology. So for example, a lot of the data in this chart came from single dose studies. We would bring in this young lady right here. We would give her some experimental pain. I don't know if we were going to zap her with a taser or something. And then we're going to give her 10 milligrams of IV morphine, bring her back next week. She's super excited to be tased again. And then we're going to see how much oral morphine we need to give her. But then we did find out very quickly with morphine as an example, it's not, the original study showed it was one to six. And then we finally realized with chronic dosing, the M6-glucuronide contributes to the analgesic effect. 
So this is the best that we have. But I have to tell you, it's, it's not on firm ground. People look at these charts. My pharmacy students say, yay, drug math. There's one right answer. There's not one right answer. You have to really put on your thinking cap. This is why I loathe, loathe apps for this, because the apps do not consider, are, is the patient young? Are they old? Are they fluffy? Are they skinny? Do they have comorbid conditions? What's the scoop? And the app does not think beyond the actual math. So I do advocate this five-step process in doing a conversion calculation first. Globally assess the patient's pain complaint. That's important because sometimes, like a nurse or a doctor will call me and say, can you do this conversion? And I say, tell me about the patient's pain. And the answer is, really, what you need to do is just increase the dose of the opioid. Or, you know, it sounds to me like that's metastatic bone pain. Have you thought about adding on a steroid? which will give you an opioid sparing effect or whatever the case may be. Also, you need that information. Is the patient in pain when you're making the switch? Are they very comfortable, but you're switching because of a side effect, which would even make me more cautious when I'm doing the switch? So you need that data. You determine the total daily dose of the current opioid, any scheduled long-acting doses, and any short-acting PRN, if you have a patient on PRN. Now, that's important. Often a nurse will say to me, I'll say, what is the patient getting? Oh, they're getting MS-Cotton 30Q12 and um, Roxanol 10 milligrams Q2 PRN. I said, great. So how much of the Roxanol are they getting? I just told you 10 milligrams Q2. I said, no, you told me the order. What is the patient getting? So you have to be pretty comfortable with that number. And if you don't know that number, don't include it in your calculation. Decide which opioid you'll be using. Look at that chart. So if this is the part that makes you want to vomit blood, let's call a third grader. It's just a ratio. We're not going to be integrating equations, taking off your shoes or anything. It's just straightforward math at this point. The heavy lifting comes in on step four and step five. Step four is where you look at that number and say, now what do I do with that sucker? Do I increase it? Do I decrease it? Do I go with this number? And we're going to look at some examples. And step five is the most important. Uh, I know in the second edition, which I've actually been working on here because I'm living under a death threat as we speak, um, it'll be out next May or I'll be pushing up daisies, so that, it's going to go either way. Um, I forgot where I was going with that with the death threat thing kind of. <laughs> kicked everything out of my head there. Um, oh, I know what I was saying. I know that um, some very well-known people like Dr. Lynn Webster, who's here at this meeting, Dr. Portnoy, Perry Fine, they advocate, you know, when you do the conversion, cut back like up to 50% and then maybe wait 15, 20 minutes a day or two and possibly cut back another 15 to 30%. So that's where the really heavy lifting comes in is you can't just they do this conversion and walk away and say, have a good life. All right, so let's look at this example. Here we have a 42-year-old man with chronic low back pain getting long-acting oral morphine, 45Q12 around the clock. He was admitted to the hospital for back surgery. What would be an equivalent dose of IV morphine? 5Q4, 10Q4, 15Q4, 30Q4, or 45 every, should be every four hours. What do you think? I'm gonna give you 10 seconds to talk to the person next to you. You have to agree on your answer, go. All right, what's the vote? A. a, right. So, you know, I'm a tricky little devil. For my pharmacy students, I'm going to put down every possible answer. I'm going to put down, when you go from oral to parenteral, of course, you divide by three. But I'm, so I'm going to have that answer there, but I'm going to have the same answer there, and I'm going to have multiplying by three, because I'm evil, and that's how I roll. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, what are some of the common conversions that we see? With the same opioid from one oral dosage formulation to a different oral formulation, the same opioid from one route to a different route, 
from one opioid to a different opioid, regardless of the formulation. And then there's the to and the from, the transdermal, and of course we have um, fentanyl and buprenorphine available. So here's an easy peasy one. 84-year-old guy in a long-term care facility. Oh, and by the way, as we do these cases, don't get all hot and bothered and question the therapeutic decision-making I have made. This is not about therapeutics. It's about the math. So hang with me, okay? Are we good? Okay, we're all still friends. Because somebody will stand up and say, I don't agree with your decision. I was like, just sit down. Be quiet and sit down. <laughs> I will take you on later. <laughs> all right. We got an old guy in a nursing home who's got general debility, but unfortunately, Medicare has decided we are not allowed to have general debility or failure to thrive anymore. Medicare has decided we have to thrive right up until we die, but that's another whole story. <laughs> He's getting oxycodone, 5-acetaminophen, 325-6 a day. His pain's well controlled, but he can't swallow tablets anymore. So his physician has asked you to convert him to the solution of, five, of 325 per 5. So what are you going to go with? What are you going to do? Somebody close where I can hear you, raise your hand. Any thoughts? This is not a hard one, people. Yeah, so what, you're going to just go with the same old dose. So we've assessed his pain. His pain is great. His pain is great. So this is the important teaching point here. I don't consider the impact of the acetaminophen in doing this calculation. Matter of fact, I don't like combination drugs because I'm stuck at no more than four grams a day of acetaminophen, and I can't go past that with the oxycodone because of that. So I would rather separate them out if it was the world according to me. But anyway, I, I don't even consider that. So you do the math, and it's the same dose. So it's going to be the 5325Q4. The only thing really you have to consider is the bioavailability. What's the bioavailability of the oral solution compared to the tablet? And, you know, it's pretty darn much the same, but we're going to monitor and see how he does. All right, here we have a 48-year-old man with rectal cancer referred to hospice. He's getting hydromorphone, 2 milligrams Q4, and the best his pain gets with this regimen is a 6 or a 7. Rectal cancer is so painful. He also tells you this every 4-hour dosing is really inconvenient, and surprise, surprise, the hydromorphone doesn't seem to last the whole 4 hours. You decide to switch him to Exalgo because you come from a very philanthropic, rich, well-funded hospice. <laughs> All these branded products, I'm not picking on Exalgo, they're all freaking expensive. Uh, the once a day hydromorphone, it comes in a bunch of strength. So here you go, he's on 2Q4, it's not getting the job done. I want you to talk to your neighbor and decide what are you gonna switch to. I'm gonna give you 15 seconds for this one. All right, so we're going to vote. I want to see every armpit in the room. Are you ready for this? Isn't that a pleasant thought? Seeing 300 armpits. All right, who wants to go with A? Okay, I got some A's. Who wants to go with B? I got a good number of B's. How about C? Oh, I got a lot of C's. Anybody want to be bold and go to D? I've got a few. There you go. So. Um, I think A is kind of a step backwards. He's, if 12 milligrams a day is not getting the job done, I don't think it's likely that 8 milligrams is going to fix that. I don't think B is a wrong answer. I think B is an okay answer, particularly if you're cautious, and I am a board-certified, PhD, card-carrying weenie, okay? I'm very, very conservative, particularly on the long-acting scheduled dose of a drug, and I'm crazy insane generous with breakthrough, particularly in a hospice patient like this. So B would not be wrong to go to the 12 and then use your breakthrough, and over the next couple of days, titrate to see where you're going to be. I probably would go with C because, you know, I don't want to buy a new drug product. I'm going to already have this in the home. Uh, but then I would still offer breakthrough in case he needed it, 
And you technically could even go to D because, you know, guidelines tell us to increase by a percent. For severe pain, you increase by 50 to 100 percent. Um, you know, and I think that when you say 50 to 100 percent, that 100 percent is when you're at really low dose um, doses. I mean, I wouldn't be crazy if you go from like 200 to 400 even. I'm not that crazy. All right, number three, WP is a 62-year-old man with multiple myeloma and diffuse bony mets admitted to hospice. He's on extended release oral morphine, 30Q12, plus oral morphine solution, 10 milligrams as needed, taking it six times a day, plus dexamethasone. Um, he's been admitted to inpatient hospice to switch to IV morphine due to continued pain. So this is the thought process I go with, with my pharmacy students. You're going from oral to IV morphine. Do you multiply or divide? You're going to divide, of course. So his total daily dose is 30Q12 is 60 plus another 60, so he's getting 120 a day. So we consult our analgesic chart, and then you know you set up equation. There are like lots of different ways you could set up an equation. This is one. You just want to you know make them set them up like the little choo-choo track, so all your units cancel. So you got the right thing in the numerator and the right thing in the denominator. And as you can see, if he's on 120 a day, looking at this middle equation right here, we know that 10 milligrams IV is about 30 of oral, and you're looking at that. Now, I do believe, I mean, you can use an app to check yourself if you would like, just don't completely rely on the app. I mean, my app story is a student who was on rotation with me, and uh, he was, I, the nurse asked me to switch somebody, and I said, so you do that for the nurse. Do that conversion to morphine for this nurse. So he said, oh, I've got an app for that. I said, of course you do. So he pulls it out, and he's apping away, and he says, wow. I said, what? Wow. He said, they came out to like almost a million milligrams of morphine. I said, well, what do you think of that? He said, well, we're going to have to order more morphine. <laughs> Don't ask me what I think, dude, okay? But I'm a big believer in that gut feeling of does that look right? So 120 oral, you're going to divide by three. It should work out to about 40. And look at that, by golly, it works out by 40. The other thing I do with my pharmacy students, I say, if I give you a quiz, and even despite impeccable math, you come up with an answer like MS Cotton, 27.4 Q12. I will mark it wrong. And you cannot argue with me. You do not have a leg to stand on because I am uh, saving you from the shame of talking to a prescriber and making that ridiculous recommendation. It has to be doable. So 40 milligrams a day IV, that's not a great look. So plus this patient is having pain. He's been admitted for pain crisis. I would increase it by anywhere from 25 to 50%. And my friends in hospitals tell me they still do dose opioids, Q4 around the clock. So I would increase it appropriately. All right. Here we have an 82-year-old woman with severe osteoarthritis of the knees. She's been getting morphine, 5 milligrams POQ4 during waking hours for the past several years. Uh, she would not move to a long-acting. Unfortunately, she had a stroke recently, and she's in pretty bad shape. She can't swallow tablets or even the oral solution. I am a big, big fan of Intensols, which is a high-concentrate oral solution. You can put up to one, one and a half mLs in the buccal cavity, prop their upper body up 30 degrees, and it's an awesome thing. When you look at a drug like morphine, probably a little less than 20% gets transmucosally absorbed, but it's okay. It kind of hangs there in that buccal cavity and trickles down the throat. It's a beautiful thing. We've got five or six or seven drugs as Intensols. Anyway, they refuse to do that. So her doc wants to switch her to rectal morphine suppositories, which comes 5, 10, 20, and 30. I'm going to give you 10 seconds to talk to your neighbor. What do you want to go with? It's a teaser because not many people like rectal anymore today, right? At least in the U.S. Europe, they don't mind it so much. I don't know what that's about. So what do you think? Who thinks it's A? Anybody for B? C? 
Okay, D. So only like 10% of you voted, but you were all right. The answer is C. Because, so the rest of you didn't vote, probably did not know what's the equivalence between oral and rectal. And we all know, pharmacists know, I mean, this is so disturbing how excited that pharmacists get talking at length about the bioavailability of a rectal formulation depends on how high up you shove it. So that is very disturbing <laughs> how exciting we find that. But nonetheless... For this, it's about one-to-one, -one, and we're not even going to talk about how far up they shove grandma suppository. All right, let's move on. Mrs. Clater is a 62-year-old woman with pancreatic cancer. Her pain is well controlled, but she can't swallow the long-acting morphine. Holy moly, grandma's on 200Q12, or even the oral morphine solution, 40Q3, which she takes once a day. Her doc wants to switch it to a parental infusion. So what do you think? Why don't you talk to your neighbor? I'm going to give you 30 seconds to ponder this one. Okay, any thoughts on this? How far did you get in your thought process? So the first thing I would wonder is, why is grandma on 430 milligrams of oral morphine a day? I know we weren't gonna talk about the therapeutics, but this is one of those cases where I would be thinking, something ain't right. This is a clear case of SARS, something ain't right syndrome, SARS. Feel free to borrow. We see that a lot, don't we? So, I mean, I would, I mean, I did do the math here, but. I would also wonder what the heck's going on. So if we just do the math, you set it up, and this is the equation I always use. This is my unknown is always in the numerator, and it's always real-time data here, what I'm solving for over what's really cooking. And over here, everything comes from the chart. In the numerator on both sides, you see we have the same drug by the same route, so sub-Q morphine, and the denominator the same thing, so oral morphine, oral morphine. So you look at that, X over 440 equals 10 over 30, so you know the numerator on the left has to be a third of 440. And you're sitting there, and in your gut, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why did she do that? Why didn't she just make the breakthrough 50? Then it would have been 450, and my life would be so perfect because 3 into 45 would be awesome. Now I got 3 into 4 goes one time, great, I got one left over. Now I got to move it over there to the next 4, and that's not even even. Then I got to move the left over to the 0. This is really a pain in my neck. But you can say to yourself, as all your second graders have learned to do, to guesstimate. So 440 is close to 450. What is a third of 450? Hello? Do I need to call your second grader? <laughs> so it's about 150, right? So the answer should be a smidge less than 150. So you do the math, and by golly, it works out to be 146.7. You divide by 24, it works out to 6.1 milligrams an hour. Now, you could do 6 milligrams an hour if you were really, really sure that that was not just accidental escalation of that opioid dose for this poor lady. I probably would round, round down at least 1 milligram an hour. You could even make an argument to go down to maybe 3 milligrams an hour and have a really competent bolus. Speaking of the bolus, what would you do for the bolus? How do you calculate a bolus with a continuous parenteral infusion? What do you think? Any thoughts? Full equal to the hourly rate? 
So I think it depends on the clinical situation. I've read anywhere from 50 to 100%. I've read 50 to 150%. So in this situation, if I said, you know what, I'm going to back this down to three milligrams an hour, and I'm going to give her three milligrams every 30 minutes as needed. So sub-Q, I generally do Q30 minutes IV. I generally do Q15. Now, this is stop PCA dosing. This is chronic persistent pain in a person with a serious illness. Here's the big question. When should the continuous infusion start relative to the last dose of the long-acting morphine. Take one last dose of the long-acting oral morphine and start the infusion immediately. Take one last dose of the long-acting oral and start the infusion eight to 12 hours later, or start the infusion and then six to eight hours later, take one more dose just for good luck of the long-acting oral. <laughs> okay, that one was a reach. I know that one was a silly billy one. But what do you think between A and B? It's probably B is the correct answer, but I think, again, it depends on your clinical situation. If the patient's in pain at the time, I would probably go sooner. I may even give her a bolus to get her rolling. So I, this is where the using, this is the art part of opioid conversion calculations comes in. All right, here, let's look at a change of opioid by route and formulation. Mrs. Smith is a 92-year-old woman with breast cancer, currently getting long-acting morphine, 60Q12, plus oral morphine solution, 20Q4, taking about three doses a day. She's been on this dose for about two weeks and her pain is just awesome, but she has developed visual hallucinations which she finds quite frightening. She has significant renal impairment with a creatinine of two, and you're thinking this adverse effect may be due to accumulation of the morphine metabolites, giving her this uh, delirium and these hallucinations. Her physician would like to switch her to long-acting oxycodone. What are the steps necessary? Well, we've assessed her pain. We agree an opioid's appropriate. We're gonna calculate the total daily dose and set up our ratio. So, X milligrams, this is the equation here, the generic equation, X milligrams of the new opioid by whatever route, and here's the equivalent from the chart, over the current milligrams of the current opioid by whatever route, and here's the equivalent from the chart. So we've got X of oral oxycodone over 180 of morphine, and from the chart we see, and this is, again, this is one of those times where it's controversial. If you look at oral oxycodone to oral morphine, some people would swear it's 15 to 30. Some swear it's 20 to 30. Some say it's 30 to 30. In my chart, I put 20 to 30 because that seems to work pretty darn well, but then again, I would probably also cut back. So you're looking at this and you're saying, it's got to be two-thirds. So it should be 120, and then I actually do the math and look at that. It was 120. Now, here's where you have to really individualize the dose for the patient. What's the situation with the patient? Um, her problem was the side effect of the hallucinations. It was not that she had poorly controlled pain. Her pain control was just fine. So because of that, I'm going to cut back 25 to 50%. So I calculated 120 of oxycodone, so I'm gonna reduce it to somewhere between 60 and 90 milligrams a day. You decide how many times a day you're gonna dose the drug. Are you gonna go twice a day? Are you gonna go with the Q4 hour formulation? Um, and then you go ahead and make sure you've got a dosage formulation that will work. So you could do long-acting oxycodone 30Q12. Um, I probably, something like this, would prefer, if I had the luxury, of um, going with a short acting, maybe Q4 for a day or two, and then once I knew I was on firm ground, switching over to the long acting. Um, or you could perhaps even be bold enough to go to 40 Q12, but again, you've got some options here. And I think part of this depends on the level of um, responsible caregivers you have available too. Is she in a nursing home? Is she in assisted living? Is she in my inpatient hospice unit? Is she at home and she lives alone and she's having hallucinations? That certainly is a horse of a different color. All right, let's, let's jump into transdermals. This is always fun. 
Mr. Johnson is a 62-year-old cancer pain patient unable to swallow tablets or oral solution. He says, no way, Jose, to the rectal, and he is not interested in parenteral. He's getting long-acting oral morphine 30Q8 with oral morphine solution 10Q3, taking four a day. Pain's well controlled, but now he can't swallow. So what are you going to do? So what are some of the things you have to think about before you jump in with both feet for transdermal fentanyl? Who's a big fan of transdermal fentanyl? Okay, I have a couple hands that went up half mass because they're almost ashamed to do it all the way up. I got one bold man over here. Okay, I got a few. Oh, I got a hand wave over here. He's with the fentanyl people. There you go. Pardon? It does take a while. It takes a good 18, 24 hours to kind of get to pseudo steady state. Pardon? It is good for renal impairment patients. Fentanyl is a drug is a good choice for people with renal impairment. But what are some other considerations? Are they opioid tolerant? Yes, sir. Yes, the weight. I mean, there's not a lot of data. It's not thick on the ground, but there's that one study from the Scandinavian area um, that showed cachectic cancer patients. They really don't get the bang for the buck you would expect. So I'm very, and we're going to do a problem on that. Um, tolerance. The FDA has said for all the transmucosal fentanyls and for transdermal fentanyl and exalgal, which we just talked about, the patient has to be opioid tolerant. Now, I don't think that's a scientifically determined number. Uh, but what they said is you have to be on the equivalent of at least 60 milligrams of oral morphine for at least a week before you switch to one of those products. And I am very careful to follow that. About 10 years ago, I was called by an attorney somewhere in the Midwest. Um, there was a patient, an, uh, an older woman. I think she had COPD, as I recall. She was terminally ill. She was very close to the end. And her husband, who adored her, begged the doctor to admit her to the hospital for a Hail Mary move. And that's the only fault I found in the case is the doctor agreed to do that. Brought her in. Nothing to do. They gave her one injection of morphine, five milligrams to help with her breathing. Uh, another, another doctor consulted her too. He or she couldn't think of anything else to do. They gave her a second injection of five milligrams of morphine. They put a 25 mic patch on her, transferred her to the hospital's inpatient hospice unit, and she died 18 hours later. And which is exactly in, consistent with when the fentanyl patch is really starting to get rolling. Uh, and the husband sued for wrongful death and said that they killed her with the patch. Uh, and I told the lawyer, I said, you don't want me as your drug expert because, A, I despise legal consulting because I want to vomit blood because it's so unnerving. Um, and I said, plus, he's right. I mean, it probably helped her out the door. Do I think it was a kindness? Yes, I absolutely think it was a kindness. But now the rule in my hospice is if someone is admitted to my hospice on either transdermal fentanyl or on methadone, the admission nurse has to ask, how long have you been on this? And if it's less than a week, we have to go back and find out what they were on prior to that and did whoever did the conversion do it correctly because we'll be, and that course was settled out of court um, and the, both, both physicians, the hospital and the hospice paid millions of dollars to that man. What a waste of money. Anyway, so opiate tolerance, this man's right about the body habitus, a fever. Um, I think transdermal fentanyl is a good choice in many specific circumstances. Like we have one patient right now at home who has been abusing his opioid. And we finally, we've offered him many things. You can go to a nursing home. You can go to assisted living. You can um, stay at home, and we will no longer use controlled substances. And none that he didn't like any of those. So I said, fine, we're going to bring you in, find out how much you really need. And he had a normal body habitus. So we put him on transdermal fentanyl and send him home and say, the only thing you can use for breakthrough is a non-scheduled drug. So sorry, because you know we don't want to kill you. 
so anyway, uh, pain intensity and stability. I'm okay using transdermal fentanyl in people with moderate to severe pain, just not if it's a changing pain picture. It's like trying to steer with a Titanic. It's just too hard. So how do you make this conversion? Um, you know, I could do the whole math for you, showing you, you know, fentanyl is about 100 times more potent than oral morphine. Um, Buprenorphine is just a little less potent than that. But what we have found is the, the rule of thumb, it turns out to be that 60 milligrams of oral morphine is about equivalent to 25 mics an hour of transdermal or parenteral fentanyl. Uh, so, but Breitbart found years ago that it's so much easier just to do the 50 milligrams equals 25 mics rule. So you add it up, this person's on 130, you do the 50% rule, that would be a 65 mic. I would never do a 50 plus a 12, I always round down, because this is far more aggressive than the Duragesic people first published when the first patch came out. So I would do 50 mics Q3 days, considerations and timing. This is one of those times where you can put the patch on and take the last tablet of your long-acting morphine because that's going to last 8 to 12 hours and it's going to take the patch, you know, about 18 hours to get rolling. MR is a 91-year-old woman with an end-stage malignancy. She's been on transdermal fentanyl now, 50 mics, Q3 days. Her pain progressed, and then the fentanyl was increased to 75, and then the very next day to 100 because her pain's not being well controlled. Yeah, I'm hearing the rumbling from the masses over here, like, oh, that's not good. Unfortunately, the recent dose increases did not appreciably relieve her pain. MR is a real flyweight. She's five foot four and weighs 78 pounds. She's hypotensive and bedbound. She can swallow tablets and capsules, so the doc wants to switch her to oral long-acting oxycodone. So what are you going to do? What do you think? Talk to your neighbor. I'll give you 10 seconds. Come up with a plan, Stan. Anybody got a plan for me? A partial plan. Hit me. Dr. Aronoff wrote the book. Well, talk to me. So you just want to stop the patch and wait 18 hours. Yeah. She is a high-risk patient. What are the observations? What, what really made all the hairs on the back of your neck stand up here? What variables in this case made you say, uh-uh, mm-hmm? She, well, A, she's older than dirt. Okay, I'll give you that. What else? 78 pounds. Oh, my God, I have sneakers that weigh more than 78 pounds. What's with that? What's with that? And then isn't it striking that she went from 50 to 75 and then 100 and nothing got better? So, but a lot of people, and present company accepted, would take that 100 mics and say, okay, let's double it because that's the rules, that's 200 of oral morphine. And you're all going, rut-row, I'm seeing something here. This is a case of SARS, something ain't right. So she's really skinny, it was not working. I mean, you've all seen people where you just stop the drug and they're no better, no worse, am I right? It, it was just not working. So I would at least cut it in half. So that would be about 100 of oral morphine, which we, if you do the math, that would be about 66 of oxycodone. You could do the long-acting 30Q12, but I absolutely probably would not. At the best, I would probably do oxycodone 10Q4 because, and I would wait a good while before doing this. I mean, I would probably have something for breakthrough that she could use, take off the patch. I generally say take off the patch and wait about 12, to 12 hours or so before you start your next opioid, but I would have breakthrough available. Yes? Absolutely, the pain could be non-opioid responsive. Of course, that's implied in all these cases that we could be completely barking up the wrong tree. Yes. 
is all about the math today, guys. All right. Here we have a 62-year-old male with history of prostate cancer admitted to the hospital for a course of palliative radiation. He's on transdermal fentanyl 50 mics. You've been asked to switch him to a continuous infusion. He has oral morphine for breakthrough, and he's not in pain. He's a happy camper. But in the hospital, they want to switch him to paranormal fentanyl. So this is mostly about the timing. And I just recently read an article about doing this twice as quickly. Uh, what the guidelines recommend at time zero, take off the transdermal fentanyl patch, establish IV access, and provide the bolus dose of 25 uh, mics every 20 minutes for the first six hours. At six hours, start your continuous infusion, again, at half. He was on a 50 mic patch. We're gonna start the continuous infusion at 25 mics an hour, but keep your bolus, and at 12 hours, increase to the full amount. Because fifth, I mean, think about it, transdermal fentanyl kind of really is a parenteral delivery system. Unless you're a goofball who's eating it, it's not intended to be an enteral system. Um, so now, what do we see later? Um, he has completed his palliative radiation course. He's ready to go home. And now his infusion is up to 70, and he's only used his bolus once in the last 24 hours. He wants to go back on the patch. What do you do? It's in reverse. So 70 mics an hour, the closest is about 75. At 8 a.m., put on the patch, but you're still cooking with the continuous infusion and the bolus. Six hours later, cut your infusion in half. 12 hours, stop the infusion. Um, and then, at, then you can stop everything and send him on his way. We take it twice as slow when we're doing this dance orally. So if we're going to oral opioids, for example. So here we have a patient, 68-year-old woman with severe osteoarthritis of the hips and knees, for which she takes acetaminophen and a nonsteroidal. But this has not cut the mustard to treat her pain, and she's having dyspepsia from the nonsteroidal. She also complains that taking medication multiple times a day makes her feel like a druggie, and she hates the reminder of the pain. She heard about a pain patch that was new on the market. What is she talking about, and what do you recommend? So she's talking about Butrans. So this is a once-a-week transdermal system. Approved for moderate to severe chronic pain in patients who require continuous around-the-clock opioid dosing. Comes in a bunch of formulations here, anywhere from 5 up to 20 mics an hour. The difference between this and transdermal fentanyl, even though buprenorphine is almost as potent to, um, compared to morphine as is fentanyl, this one you can start at the 5 mic an hour patch in an opioid-naive patient. Um, but you want to hold tight for at least 72 hours before you increase it. Um, so with her, that's what we would do. JK is a 64-year-old man with cervical and lumbar back pain that is fairly responsive to his oxyacetaminophen, and he's using six tablets a day when he remembers to take them. When he gets busy, he forgets to take his analgesic, and the pain overwhelms him, and he has to stop everything and lie down. His neighbor, E.T., from the previous case, told him about this awesome new pain patch, Butrans, that works so darn well for her, he wants to know if he can switch to it too. Don't you love it when the neighbor prescribes? It's awesome. <laughs> Love it. Okay, so um, some of the, I mean, I, I was, uh, did a pre-con here and talking about a paper that my good friend Dr. Mel Davis wrote about the 12 most awesome things in the world about buprenorphine. He thinks that it is the most awesome drug in the universe and we should just like put it in public water. Uh, but it does have a lot of advantages. People think it has a lower abuse potential, less dangerous than an overdose. You do get some tolerance more so to, than other opiates with the respiratory depression, fewer withdrawal symptoms hypothetically. Uh, but of course, it, all drugs have contraindications and precautions. So it is a once a week patch. You can apply it to the upper outer arm, upper chest, upper back and the side, and don't reuse that site for the next 21 days. So we always start opioid naive patients at five mics, and then their, their labeling says if the patient's on less than 30 milligrams of oral morphine to start at the five mic, and if they're on between 30 and 80, uh, use the 10 mic patch, and then you can go up from there. So this patient is getting 30 milligrams.
oxycodone a day, which is 40 milligrams of oral morphine. Um, so you could reduce it and then go down to the, the 10 mic patch and then see how he does. And you could always supplement with acetaminophen or a non-steroidal. So in summarizing, and then we'll have some time for Q&A, which of the following statements is true? So everybody, you got to raise your hand if you think it's true. Opioid-naive patients may start transdermal fentanyl or buprenorphine as their first opioid. True or false? Why is that false? You can't do it because of the fentanyl. You could with the bup. 20 milligrams a day of oral morphine is equivalent to 60 milligrams a day of parenteral morphine. False. Why is that false? Yeah, but I catch 20% of my students on that one. What can I say? i got to get my grin somehow. <laughs> oral morphine is more potent than oral oxycodone. True or false? False. It's the other way around. Exalgo is dosed once a day. True. We did talk about that. So I think some final thoughts here are certainly look for situations where switching from one opioid or one formulation or one route of administration to a different one is a good idea. Please, 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 please recognize the limitations of those equianalgesic tables. Um, use a fair balance table. I know that um, I even called my friend Chris Herndon, who's over here, I'm going to put him on the spot. I called him last weekend. I said, you have to stop what you're doing, give up your family, and talk to me, because I live near a really big bridge, and I'm going to jump if you don't call me. So he said, I'll call you in five. So he did. He called me in five, and I was like, you've got to talk me off the ledge, because I don't know what the heck to do with this bloody chart. And we talked through it. He was very helpful. Thank you, boo. So uh, I, I, the chart is like this big, and the footnotes are about this big. So like three pages of footnotes and caveats about the chart. So please, you know, don't, uh, uh, don't use a chart that is given to you on a piece of information from a pharmaceutical company because they, are, they have a chart to guide you to convert to their product, and they are purposely being conservative because they don't want you to get into trouble. But they never intended for you to use that chart, that data, to convert like off their product or to convert between other products. So the American Pain Society has a nice charter like theirs. Of course, I think mine is awesome. I have an exhibit if you want to stop by. I'll give you a laminated copy of mine. But, but remember the ramifications and the limitations of all of those charts, please. Uh, follow approved labeling for switching in opioid tolerant patients. So your transmucosal fentanyl, your transdermal fentanyl. Please use the five-step process. Assess the pain. Make sure you ha really have your arms around how much opioid they're getting per day. Look at the MAR if you have a chance to do that. Um, then make sure you do the math correctly. Um, you can use an app to check your math, but steps four and five, adjust, 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 and monitor your patient like crazy. Use a fair balance chart. Considering the timing, can I go right from drug A to drug B and start four hours later? Do I have to have a time lag? Should I overlap them? So things that make me crazy, we didn't even talk about methadone dosing, which is my all-time favorite drug in the universe, is when you, there's one method of switching to methadone which says, you know, keep your current opioid regimen and start your methadone the same day, and the next day reduce your morphine or whatever by a third, and then keep the methadone going, and the next day reduce by another third, and then finally stop it. But too many people died from that overlap. The thinking was, we'll just reduce the old regimen while the methadone is building up. But that is so variable, people could die while you're waiting for that to happen. Not a good look. Uh, and then document your interventions and educate, educate, educate. Wow, that was a jam-packed 55 minutes of drug math. Thank you. What questions, what questions do you have for me? Yes, ma'am, right here. Where does Nucinta fit in? Um, Nucinta to oral morphine is about 3.3 to 1. And there's uh, some very nice publications on that. Mercadente did some very nice work on that.
If you stop by my table, I'll give you the citation. Other questions? Over there, the mic is coming. Wait for the mic. Do you have any input about the use of cannabis or cannabinoids with uh, full agonist opiates? You're using cannabis with opioids? I do think that, I don't have an equi-analgesic conversion. I mean, oh my gosh, we are too wacky altogether to talk about cannabis conversions, although that would be fine. No, no, no not um, conversions. I do think, though, that the cannabis is going to give you an opioid-sparing effect. Not conversions. I'm hearing some pain specialists because patients are using uh, medical, medicinal marijuana, that they're decreasing their total opioid I agree with daily you. dose. Yes, well, I do think that when people are using cannabis, their opioid requirement is, is less. If you look at that study that showed the states where cannabis has been legal, their opioid overdose death rate was like 25% lower. Now, what we don't know is the cannabis actually treating the pain itself and giving you a true opioid sparing effect, or with the patient taking the opioid for a mood altering effect. I don't know, but yes, I think you do have to take that into consideration. I'll have to make that a sixth step. Any other comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. Morphine, morphine to methadone. The way I do that is up to 60 milligrams a day of oral morphine equivalent. I treat them like they're opioid naive, and I start anywhere from two to seven and a half milligrams of methadone a day. If they're on greater than 60 milligrams of oral morphine, so between 60 and 199 milligrams of oral morphine equivalent, I do a 10 to one conversion. If they're on greater than 200 or higher or over 65, I do a 20 to one conversion. That's what, the Reader's Digest version. What number is your booth so we can get your laminated copy? My booth is like right outside the main exhibit hall, T4 maybe. I don't know. It's right, it's right as you come out of the main exhibit hall. Thank you. Thank you all so much for your attention.